Hey, are you here? Well, I'm here, but so are you. What a coincidence. Welcome to the Paul Leslie Hour. We got something good for you today, recorded during Paul's recent trip to Nashtownville. It's an in-person interview with legendary producer and songwriter, Alan Reynolds. Reynolds produced the first albums in the careers of Don Williams, Crystal Gale, Garth Brooks, and he's also an inductee into the Nashville Songwriters Hall of Fame. The songs of Alan Reynolds have been recorded by Waylon Jennings, Johnny Cash, Emmylou Harris, and Jerry Lee Lewis, just a name but a few. And we want to thank you all for tuning in, but also all of you who support independent media. If you would, just visit thepaulleslie.com support and give to yourself and others the gift of stories. You make this show possible. Thanks. Hey, what do you say we get this episode started with Alan Reynolds? Let's listen together. Well, it's September 30th, 2023. I'm here at the home of Alan Reynolds. Thank you so much for having me over here. You bet. When I think back about all the interviews that I've done over the years, and it's getting to be close to 20 now, There's one that I go back to again and again and again, and that's the interview that we did. Really? Yes, indeed. And that was an audio only. Anybody out there is welcome to go listen to it. But this this time we're in living color. Alan Reynolds, is there anything about your life that has surprised you? (laughs) A good deal of it, really. I mean, just uh, where I ended up. And, and the music business, um, you know, it was just, uh, hello, George. <laughs> this is George. Yeah. It was uh, just something that kind of evolved. Okay. <laughs> he's a very friendly cat. Yeah, he's a good guy. Now, you come originally from North Little Rock, Arkansas. Outside of it, yeah. I was actually born, not in a hospital, but out in a a community called Sylvan Hills, uh, outside of North Little Rock. Have you been back recently or any time? No, it's been a long time. Been a long time? Since I was there. I don't have relatives there anymore. No? So there's really nothing to call me back. I would probably find it uh, greatly changed and, and probably fully developed by these by now. If you could paint a picture with words, what would you say that that, that little town was like? It was great. It was very rural. It wasn't even a town. It was just a, a community. And um, it... Um, um, my grandparents' house in Georgia. <laughs> Come on. <laughs> my grandparents' house uh, was um, uh, just a small four-room house with a screened porch and um, a big, long, uh, several acres uh, lot. And um, uh, one of my big memories is that, that we played croquet hmm. out in this uh, big lot next to the house. Um, and my grandparents had bantam hens and, and a rooster that lived outside and a, and a dog named Pal, a big old yellow lab named Pal. And um, it was just uh, totally peaceful. I mean, Mm. it was so long ago that you rarely ever even saw an airplane pass overhead. Mm. So it was pretty much out in the country. You know, the last interview that we did, Garth Brooks was kind enough to allow me to ask him a question, and I asked him, what does Alan Reynolds mean to you? And he said that, he said a few things, but one of the things he kept pushing was that you had a confidence, but also a humbleness at the same time. And I'm kind of in agreement that when someone has confidence but they remain humble, you're working with two 
those are two good mindsets to or or ways of being to go with. Where does your confidence come from? You know uh, that he would say that. Uh, by the time I started working with Garth, I had gone through a lot of my career, and um, and I had gone through prior to meeting him. A few years prior, I had gone through a pretty uh, uh, unhappy point, low point, hmm. where I even uh, thought about selling my uh, recording studio and just going back to being a songwriter. And um, uh, and that was a passage that I made and, and I ended up uh, deciding uh, very clearly that um, I was gonna stay on that corner and make the best music I could make, whether anybody wanted it or liked it or not, and uh, that I, I was secure there on that corner on 16th Avenue. And um, and not long after that, I got uh, the chance to start working with Kathy Matea. And, um, and during that process, I got the chance to uh, reaffirm the basics of what I believed about making music and, uh, and, and making records. And... Uh, so I told Garth this at, uh, at some point uh, after we've been working together a while that I, I really was never more confident uh, in myself than I was when we started working together because I had kind of gone through the, the, the fire and, uh, mm. and, and reaffirmed my values uh, before we ever met. So that's probably why he... I did feel uh, confident of myself uh, as far as what I was doing uh, by the time we met. Hmm. Um, and then I've never thought I was all that important, but I, um, I just uh, have always been grateful I had the chance to do what I was doing because hmm. uh, it, was, uh, it was something I really loved. Yeah, and um, so that's 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 probably where Garth was getting that from. But not just in music, any type of project, anything you want to undertake, attitude is so important, isn't it? Oh yeah, yeah. It's uh, you know, it's what calls in. Uh, from the cosmos, uh, your fate, really. Yeah. Hmm. And uh, so, yeah, how you think about things is right is hugely important. It makes all the difference. Yeah. Nonetheless, there are going to always be you know highs and lows, and you know uh, there are certain songs that that you wrote, and I would. Uh, I've been listening to a lot of them lately and listening to all different versions of songs. Uh, one, of course, would be Ready for the Times to Get Better. What's the best way to weather the storm? What's the best way to get through adversity? I'd say just keep plowing. Mm. And, um, and resolve that Somewhere within, you mean something, and you're worth something, and so is your opinion. I, I think we're all so many snowflakes. We're we're all human, but we're unique, uh, each of us. And uh, if you just believe in that and and um, keep doing your best, uh, that'll that'll get you through. Yeah, I think. Was that particular song, was that song inspired by some kind of uh, troublesome time or? Yeah, I, I was, uh, I had an inner debate going that, at that time about a number of things. And, uh, but the way the song came about, I, I, a friend of mine had... Uh, was going to be out of town and asked me if I would water her plants while she was gone. So I'd gone by her. She's, she was a songwriter. 
and I had gone by her house to water her plants, and uh, there was her um, upright piano there, and so I, I'm not a piano player, I'm, I'm a strummer, and uh, can play a few chords, but I sat down at uh, her piano and, and spent at least half an hour uh, just noodling around on it and not really inspiring myself and 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 then I got up to leave took about two steps and that song just shot through my head I, I spun around sat back down at the piano and went exactly to the to the chord that was in my head and it was not like anything I'd been doing uh, for that half hour and uh, and the verse and course came to me pretty quickly, and um, and then I wrote the second verse the next morning, um, and um, and it did express um, some some of the frustration, I guess, that I was feeling at that time, hmm. um, just at at life. Yeah. <laughs> I think a lot of people who follow creative pursuits or they're working on anything, projects, some of them, and maybe this is self-delusion, I don't know, but will say something like, that was a sign. That's a sign that I'm doing the right thing. I should go the right, you know, this was a good move. So it was last week I was listening to the radio. I don't remember. I think this was Sirius XM. And... I had never heard this version of Five O'Clock World. I'd heard the old version from, um, what were they? The, the Vogues. The Vogues, yeah. Like I can remember my parents, you know, driving around and that being on. But the Hal Ketchum version of that song yeah. came on the radio. I'd never heard that version. Yeah, that's a good version. Very good. Hal, uh, you know, Jim Rooney and I were, were producing Hal and uh, working on his first album. And um, he came in wanting to record that, which took me totally by surprise. But he said he he had sung it in clubs in Austin when he lived there, and um, and just loved it. And I I wasn't sure, but he and Rooney both thought uh, it was a good idea, and uh, so that's when we recorded it. And that song. Uh, um, I, I've spent uh, about five and a half years working for a bank in Memphis, Tennessee, um, and moonlighting the music uh, during that time. And I had a, a contract, a writing contract with Screen Gems Publishing Company uh, through their Nashville office. So Dickie Lee and I were writing for them, and we, we co-wrote a lot. And... Uh, we would write up a batch of songs and then come to Nashville on, on a weekend and, and uh, make demos of those recordings. So uh, that song came to me like a, a number of my songs have come to me, Melody First. And I really liked the melody, and, but didn't wasn't sure where to go with it and just kind of would, would uh, mess with it. And uh, one day I came home from work at the bank and the, and the lyrics started uh, falling out, and I was happy with them. And, um, and it was right out of my life at that time. Up every morning just to keep a job, got to fight my way through the hustling mob, sounds of the city pounding in my brain while another day goes down the drain. <laughs> and uh, so that was, that was right out of my, my life at that time. I like that song a lot, and when I heard it on the radio, because it, it kind of struck me, I thought, this is a sign. I'm absolutely going the right direction. I'm supposed to go back and interview Alan the second time. This, this, is, this, is, a, this is it's a sign. <laughs> but, but maybe, do you think maybe we look at things like that, and we're just, we're going the way we want to go, and we just, we want that affirmation. Yeah. yeah, yeah, that's possible. Do reviews matter? You know, you work hard and produce a record, and then you either have writers who say it's great, they're indifferent to it, or 
in some cases, a, a, a reviewer says they don't like something. Do they matter to you? Not a lot. The, uh, it, what matters a lot more to me, or always did, was uh, feedback I might get from uh, my peers and, and, and people that I knew whose who's, uh, um, appreciation for music was a little more known to me and, and a little more real. Um, the critics have to try to think of something to say, right? And um, and you know, sometimes it's worth paying attention to, and, and sometimes it isn't. Yeah. Um, um, my friend Jack Clement had a habit of of uh, pointing out that experts were often wrong. Yes. And um, <laughs> some of the worst feedback I, I got over the years was from the industry, specifically from record labels, who astonishingly seldom knew when they heard something, yeah. uh, whether it was good or not. Uh, that's surprising. It's still surprising to me that labels had such a hard time finding uh, someone to be on their staff who, who really had a gut feeling for music, and because um, hmm. often they were they were just marketing people, and um, and most of them are scared of what radio might think. Right. So, uh, you know, I didn't I didn't I appreciated it when I got a good review, but yeah. but uh, I didn't I didn't uh, lay a whole lot of stock in it. There was something I read in a newspaper one time. Jimmy Buffett was was commenting to someone, and he said that he only read the reviews when they were good. <laughs> That's a good policy. <laughs> <laughs> and he said, because I'm trying as hard as I can. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And you're closer to it than anyone, and, um, and you know what you're trying to, to accomplish. And uh, you have to go with your own gut instincts and uh, and trust that you know but with enough experience you can get to where you can trust your gut instincts uh, after you learn enough and and have a good enough feel for what you're doing and you know one of the basics of entertainment is that you're trying to surprise people pleasantly right and um, and so it isn't like uh, a lot of critics, a lot of marketing people with record labels. They're they're dealing in history, what the last record did, right. what radio said uh, the last time, and and uh, you know it's um, if you're an entertainer, you're thinking about your next show. Right, you're out into the into the future, into what's coming, and. Uh, and that takes a certain um, a gift and, and, and a certain kind of experience to, to do that, to learn to give your audience a pleasant surprise. Right. So. Well, speaking of surprise, I think there's a certain moment in the, the first famous Garth Brooks live album, which you produced. I think of any live album I've listened to that the most because it's just such a great live record. Thank you. But there's this surprising moment for, for Bob Dylan fans when there's the performance of To Make You Feel My Love, right. which is just one of the all-time great yeah. songs, in my opinion. What did you think about Garth's approach to that song? Oh, I loved it. Um, it, it came about because of, uh, of um, Don Waz was doing the music for a movie, and uh, and it was to be part of the movie, and um, um, we went out to Hollywood and, and met with him, but Garth wanted to record it here, and from the beginning, Garth had his, his own idea about how he wanted to do it, how he wanted to present that song, and me, I was just blown away with the song and once again blown away with Bob Dylan and the breadth 
of his talent. You yeah. know, I mean, talk about surprises. And uh, there was another wonderful surprise from the pen of Bob Dylan. Yeah. And uh, if, if you just played the song for me, I would have never guessed that Bob Dylan wrote it. Yeah. Um, and um, um, so, but the, but the approach to that song, that was Garth's um, reaction to it. Uh, yeah. Yeah. It, it was very interesting to me to read not long ago when Bob Dylan was interviewed and he he praised that version and he, he praised a few of the versions. He said, I think, you know, the Adele version is wonderful, the Billy Joel version and the Garth Brooks version. It's a magical song, I think. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, beautiful. Well, there's one song that you wrote. Uh, one of the all-time great American singers sang this. And then another of the all-time great American singers did it too. Someday my ship will come... Someday my ship will sail. Right. And I'm wondering, Johnny Cash recorded that. Right. Emmy Lou Harris recorded that. Right. Not bad at all. <laughs> what did you think when you heard these iconic voices? And here they are, they're singing your song. I was I was blown away because I'm um, such a fan of both of those artists. And, uh, you know, when an artist you really love and, and respect does one of your songs it's it's the greatest compliment yeah. in the world and um, but it's beyond a compliment I mean it's just you know uh, transporting almost to hear hear someone that you admire like that embrace uh, something that you that you wrote so uh, and Emmy Lou I, I ran into her not Terribly long, actually at a at Harlan Howard's house. Uh, he was having a, a party, and um, I ran into her there and thanked her for cutting it. And hmm. uh, and she told me that that they loved it because they thought it was uh, it was a gospel album, but they she thought this was one of the most ecumenical songs, and um, and. Um, and that was why she had chosen it. It has a very spiritual, uh, even the melody, you know, it, it seems hymnal. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I've, I've always liked that song. Um, it, it came from somewhere. It's not one that I calculated. Uh, to, it just kind of came out one night. I had actually smoked a little bit and, and was uh, in a, in a, at Jack Clement's house with uh, two or three friends uh, one evening and uh, suddenly I went off into another room and and that song just kind of came through <laughs> and um, and it says something that I I think I agree with and <laughs> and like George George is a good pal <laughs> he, he was kind of uh, I think he was caressing his head on my foot <laughs> <laughs> If anybody is is wondering why I was looking down, it was it was at George. <laughs> what makes a good song a good song? Well, that's a good question. I I don't know. I just don't know how to define that. But it's often my experience, and it's it's the same for a great many of my friends. Uh, when you hear something that really touches you, you get bumps, chill bumps on your arm or, or up and down your spine. And, and uh, I don't, that's an interesting phenomenon. Yeah. But uh, I, I don't know if I can define it beyond that. Could you name a song from any of history that you think, now this is an example of an absolutely, undeniably incredible song. Yeah, I would, I would name the dance for one. Yeah. Um, and the, and I, I may have told you the story of that one. Uh, when, when Garth and I were first working together at some point, he mentioned that he had gathered some songs uh, along the way. And, um, and 
I said, well, I'd be glad to listen through those if you would like for me to. And one day he came in with a box top lid about this size, uh, and a, it was a mound of cassettes. Yeah. And I took that home and listened, and and uh, when I heard the dance, it just stopped me. And, and happily, I had a copy of the lyric in front of me, and because uh, Tony Arata, the writer, I love his singing, but he's not always the easiest guy to understand. Uh, and also, that poem is so economical, it, it, it goes by, it's, it's like so sparse, but so deep. And, um, and so it helped a lot having that, uh, that lyric sheet there, but I listened to it several times. And, uh, and the, the, when Garth and I got together next, that was one of the things I wanted to talk to him about. Yeah. And the dance is, uh, just, it is a breathtaking, you know, there's so many things in it. It's, it's, it's got, a a world within those lyrics, yeah. you know? Yeah. I always thought that maybe this, the spirit of Johnny Mercer, because Tony Arata is from Savannah. Right. That Johnny Mercer must have been looking over and nodding. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It, it's, I'm yeah. sure you approved. Yeah, it's, it's beautiful. It's a, it's a beautiful song. That's off to Tony Arata. Yeah. Now... I wanted to talk about you produced, I think it must have been like the first 10 or so Crystal Gale records. Mm-hmm. What did you think when you encountered this singer? Well, I, I was impressed. Um, she um, um, was, uh, the assignment was given to me by Larry Butler uh, at uh, Capitol Records. And um, and it was to cut a single. That was our commission. And um, uh, she and her husband came to the studio, and I had a piano player there, and um, and she uh, sang Wayward Wind and um, uh, maybe a couple of other things live for me. And um, uh, she had a very impressive voice. Um, <clears throat> and was just really nice and and smart and um uh, and young and and um you know the fact that she was Loretta Lynn's sister I already knew that her baby sister and um and it was um, a really nice meeting so we we went to work um she was traveling some doing shows and we went to work to find uh material for for uh, cutting a single and uh it was a song of mine called wrong road again that we cut and um we also cut a song sandy mason wrote called when i dream and uh when i dream appeared on the very first album that we did but uh, um the the uh, the single was wrong road again which i wrote and i didn't want to use when i dream for a B-side because it was too wonderful a song to be a B-side. And so uh, she had done, she had recorded a few songs with uh, a guy named Kelso Hurston, who was at that time managing the label when she was signed. And um, and so I dug back into the archives and used one of the things he had produced for the B-side of that single. And then later, uh, you know, after she had been uh, a few years later, after she'd been uh, singing "When I Dream" as an encore number uh, on stage, and you could hear a pin drop, and um, her affection for that song had grown and grown, and she wanted to re-record it, so we did another version, and that's the one that came out as a single, and she titled that album "When I Dream," and uh, it's one of the classic songs of country music, I think. Um, but uh, working with Crystal was was a wonderful experience. She she was uh, very versatile, uh, and she was game. And you would you would think that being Loretta's baby sister, she would have been more locked into 
uh, an earlier traditional uh, country uh, aspect, and she wasn't. She was game. She was ready to experiment and, and uh, wide open for, for uh, the kinds of songs that she sang. And of course, one of our basic first assignments was to find the real Crystal Gale as distinguished from her older, famous older sister, Loretta. Yeah. Uh, and we had to do that uh, in, in strong terms in order to overcome the famous older sibling. Right. Because uh, that's often very difficult. Uh, so she had to carve her own identity and, and own path, and, and that was our one of our first challenges from the start. But uh, she was such a great singer and just a sweet person, just yeah. fun, fun to work with. So. I've seen so many artists in, in concert. I have not seen Crystal Gale, but I really I, I need to make that happen. Yeah. I want to see her live. Yeah. Yeah. So great, great. And you know, you you have been the the producer, the first producer for, you know, it just occurring to be now Crystal Gale, mm-hmm. Garth Brooks, mm-hmm. Don Williams. You produced the first mm-hmm. two. I mean, that's that's pretty astonishing. Yes, pretty lucky. <laughs> <laughs> lucky, you say. Yeah. So, the Don Williams, you produced Volume 1 and Volume 2. Right. And there have been people I know who have said, I don't like country music. And I'll play, I have some Don Williams old vinyl records. And they say, what's this? This is wonderful. Right. You know, do you have any story from your time with Don Williams? Yeah, and, and, and to, to the point you're making there, I... I uh, uh, I've experienced that a number of times with yeah. non-country music fans who, just because of their bias, their built-in bias, were a little snooty about country music, and I would play them Crystal Gale or Don Williams, and, and they would go, "Is that country? I like that." Yeah, you know, and, yeah. uh, and um, I've always thought country music was as good as any music when it's good. You know, and uh, so anyway, I've had that experience. Don Williams, um, I had uh, um, I had met um, Jack Clement wanted to start a record label in the early seventies, and um, and he wanted it to be a righteous record label. He wanted um, he didn't want just hit records. He wanted to hit sound, and. Um, so the first thing I did, he wanted me to run the label for some reason. Anyway, one of the first things I did was ask Bob McDill to make an album for the label. And I went in, in pursuit of Susan Taylor, who was Don Williams' partner in the Pozo Seco Singers. And I loved her voice. I, I remember where I was when I, when I first heard the record Time uh, with the, her singing lead. And uh, I had met the two of them early on in my time in Nashville, and then they split up. Don went to, to Texas to go into the furniture business with his father-in-law. And while I finally convinced Susan uh, to, to make an album with me for the label, and because um, she had been pretty, she was pretty jaded by the music industry by this time, and, um, but she finally agreed and we were at work on her album um, and at some point she said, um, mentioned Don and said, Donnie, as she called him, was pretty unhappy in the furniture business and was wanting to come to town and, and kind of check things out and wanted to know if I would have dinner with him when he came. And I said, sure. So very shortly Don came to town. She thought we'd like each other. We had dinner and we did like each other. And, uh, and he was talking about coming maybe six months later uh, to moving back. And uh, I said, well, when you do, get in touch with me and we'll, we'll see if we can work something out. And, um, and so uh, probably within a month, he showed up. He was here with everything he owned in a U-Haul truck and, and his wife and kids. 
So that was sooner than I anticipated, but I put him to work in Jack's publishing company um, and told him we would record him a little later on. And, um, and so he was, you know, working in the publishing company, doing a good job there. And one day he, you know, he said, well, Reynolds, when are we going to record me? And I <laughs> said, well, I guess right now. And so we started uh, work on his first album. And um, uh, one of the writers for the publishing company was Bob McDill, Dickie Lee, me, Don Williams, Waylon Holyfield, Jim Rushing. It was quite a gathering of songwriters, Vince Matthews. Anyway, we had uh, a, a bunch of songs from that group of writers that were being turned down all over town. And we loved them, so we started recording Don's album, and uh, and it was like uh, a new sound, and uh, and, and it was very exciting because uh, it. You talk about having a good gut feeling. I had a great feeling about that <laughs> music, and when we finished that album, I remember uh, going home with my first vinyl test pressing and putting it on the record player and lying down on the floor and listening to that album and feeling great about it and thinking to myself, I will love that album just as much 10 years from now as I do today. It's not only good, it will wear well. And, um, and it made Don Williams a star. And, um, and it had some classic pieces on there. Amanda by Bob McDill, you know, it's just... Uh, and Jack Clement, when he heard Amanda, he wrote on a yellow legal pad, Amanda, exactly as good as Shakespeare, signed Jack H. Clement. <laughs> uh, but working with Don was great. We were like brothers, and uh, and I, I was committed to, I thought he could do anything he wanted. I thought he could be an artist, he was a good writer, I thought he could be a good producer if he wanted to do that. And uh, so I was into trying to teach him everything I knew. And, uh, and uh, when he started having hits, uh, he, he asked me how, this was still in the day of the nudie suits and all of that, and I, he, was, he asked me how he should dress for public appearances. I said, I think you should dress like you dress, your blue <laughs> jeans jacket and your blue jeans and boots. And that's how he dressed. He had later added the hat, but uh, first album, uh, cover he he doesn't have that hat and he's in his blue jeans and uh, and it's real and his music is it was real and um, and it, it pleased me very much it was uh, it was a new sound. Well, if anybody is into Don Williams, you inevitably, if you get into it, you're going to start thinking about McDill yeah. because Bob McDill wrote, you know, not just for Don Williams, but just some incredible songs. I did an interview with Bob McDill at his house this year, and there, you know, he put me completely at ease. I was very comfortable. He was very welcoming. Then there was a certain point about midway through the interview, and I thought, this guy wrote Amanda. Yeah. <laughs> this guy wrote Good Old Boys Like Me. And I was for just a moment. I thought, "Wow, yeah, he's getting inducted into the Country Music Hall of Famer." He he was inducted, I should say. Uh, what do you what do you have to say about this guy, Bob McDill? He's such an interesting character. Well, you know, I love Bob. I, I, I first met him when he was in college in Beaumont, Texas, and uh, and we got to know each other a little bit. I took him into the studio that Jack and Bill Hall had and helped him make some voice guitar uh, demos of a few of his songs. And and he, there were some really interesting songs. Yeah. And I've always told people, even Bob's learning pieces were good. <laughs> and uh, and I could still quote you lyrics from, from one of those songs today, uh, all those years ago. And, um, and so after Dickie Lee and I left Beaumont and moved back to Memphis and we started our own little publishing company, uh, 
Bob and I kept in touch, and he would periodically send me songs. And we we got uh, we were pitching them around. We got one cut by Sam the Sham, and one cut by Perry Como, and um, and I just always was taken with uh, his very unique musical voice, and uh, and encouraged him. And uh, when Dickie and I decided to move to Nashville. I encouraged him to, to move, to come up and have a look here. And he wasn't sure, because he really didn't think of himself as a country artist. Uh, but I, I remember uh, after he did move here, he was still kind of uncertain about it. And I remember one day saying, Miguel, this town is your meat, and, uh, and you're going to be great here. And uh, he just wrote a very literate, uh, kind of music and uh, Good Old Boys Like Me is one of the best songs I ever heard. It's also one of the best recordings of one of the best songs I ever heard. Yeah. And um, and it's just strikingly, stunningly beautiful. Yeah. And uh, and it doesn't get better than that. Um, so, but for me, uh, now, uh, the the first most attractive thing about Nashville was always the songwriters who came from here. Yeah. Um, and you can go down a list of, of these giant songwriters who, who made their home here. And MacDill uh, has created his own place among the pantheon yeah. of great songwriters. And um, I'm, I'm very proud of him uh, to for this uh, um, induction into the Hall of Fame, that's poetic justice in my my view for him to be inducted into the Country Music Hall of Fame. Yeah? As a songwriter, yeah. Why do you say that? Well, it's just uh, uh, songwriters are very much appreciated in Nashville, but they're not, the, it's a newer thing I got you. for the Hall of Fame to acknowledge songwriters. Right. Uh, and um, and it's not as frequent as they yeah. as they induct artists, and there are so many writers in Nashville to choose from, and um, I I don't think there's a better choice to be made uh, than Bob McDill. Yeah, and uh, and so that's that's very just and and happy news. Yeah, yeah. And congratulations, Bob McDill, for sure. Yeah. And it is, it's wonderful. Like, I was very excited when Dean Dillon was inducted. I thought, that's, that's fitting. Yeah. You know, anybody who writes Tennessee Whiskey. Yeah. Uh, and some of the other ones, I mean, goodness. Yeah. Yeah. He um, uh, wrote some hits for Crystal Gale. I, I still remember been at my studio on a Saturday, and Crystal and I were, were recording, working on an album, and I was feeling kind of desperate for songs, and uh, and I had this reel-to-reel tape from Bill Hall, who was publishing Bob by that time, and, um, uh, hi, buddy. <laughs> and um, uh, on that tape, there were three songs by Bob McDill, and we got all three of them. And uh, two of them were number one songs for Crystal, and the other one was a, 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 an encore number for years and years. Uh, and um, it, I can remember how my spirits lifted. I called Bill Hall on a Saturday to thank him uh, for this uh, tape that he had sent me. So Bob, is, uh, Bob has made his mark uh, with a lot of artists. And of course, Don Williams, that was just a perfect marriage. Yeah. The last interview we did, you were mentioning the song that you you wrote, I Recall a Gypsy Woman. Uh-huh. And you said that you really liked that song in particular. Yeah. And it's a very atypical song, I think. I like the song a lot, but it is certainly very different. Yeah. Where did Where did this idea come from? I'm not sure, but uh, <laughs> McDill and I wrote it, right. and uh, and I remember I had a writing room out behind the house that I lived in in, in Memphis, and uh, 
I remember being out there working on that song with him, and we got it started, and uh, and and it started feeling good, and we we didn't finish it that night, and we worked on it another night, and yet another night, and uh, I loved the fact that Bob was a, a writer who didn't get in a hurry to finish a song if it was worth your time, because that's the way I always felt, and. Um, and yeah, I've worked with other writers who just, you know, wanted to get it done, finish it, and and would shove any old kind of line in there to be able to leave and say we finished it. And mm. and we took our time with that song because we really liked it. And uh, and then we it, uh, we finished it during the time that I was commuting to Nashville and uh, sang it for a few people uh, up here, um, and you know got good feedback on it. But McDill and I, neither one really sang that song, did it justice. We could sing it, but we didn't do it justice. And um, the magic thing that happened was that one day, Jack Clement, when he was starting the record label, he would reserve one day a week in his studio, recording studio, for himself. And he would invite different musicians because uh, he was looking for a band a studio band that would suit him and would deliver something fresh and um, and not get in a hurry in the studio. Because in that day and time, people were used to getting four songs in three hours. Right. And, and it was often too fast. And in Memphis, where I was working, we would, uh, a session usually lasted five hours. Yeah. Because we were looking for something creative thing and anyway um, so this morning I showed up uh, and uh, Jack said uh, he'd run into Waylon the night before Waylon Jennings who was one of the voices that called me to Nashville and uh, just a hero of mine and uh, he, he said I invited him to come play with us and he didn't know if he was going to come or not well immediately I was thinking what song have I got I can show him and um and he did show up, and at some point, um, I went upstairs in the studio, and there was Jack and Waylon sitting, talking, and a couple of songwriters sitting on the floor, and I joined, joined the songwriters. And um, and at some point, Waylon got up and, and said, I'll be right back, and went downstairs. While he was gone, I started singing, I recall, The Gypsy Woman. <laughs> and uh, my songwriter pals knew the song, and kind of joined in, strumming and singing. Waylon came back about halfway through and kind of froze, you know, listening to it, and looked at Jack and said, I could do that song. Uh, <laughs> I nearly died. And Jack got up and we went downstairs. Several of us went into the studio with Waylon and um, were playing, and Jack pretty quickly weeded us all out And until it was just Waylon with a guitar Jim Isbell on drums and Joe Allen on bass and they cut that song and it was so good it was just Chill Bump City and uh, and they were in there listening to the playback uh, and there's Jack and Waylon at the console and the rest of us standing around and at some point Jack's putting echo on the bass drum and they're listening and, and Waylon looks at Jack and he said by God I can sing can I? <laughs> And, I, and I, it just killed me because at that time, William was getting some pretty funky feedback from certain parts of radio saying he can't even sing, you know, and, and um, resisting him. And, and then Susan Taylor, who was there, said, I could hear some finger symbols in just a couple of places. And someone said, I got some in the car. So they brought those in and she put those in real sparse. <laughs> And then uh, Danny Flowers was there, and he said, I could put a harp on there. Waylon just put his arm around Danny, walked out in the studio, and Danny played this incredible, sparse, haunting harmonica part on that song, and it was done. Uh, and um, and Jack, he also cut Good Hearted Woman that day. And Jack tried to give the tapes to RCA, no strings attached, you can have them, and uh, and they said no, we didn't have a union engineer there. We we can't use them. Hmm. And uh, and so Waylon went over to RCA and recut 
good-hearted woman and put it out as a single. I recall a gypsy woman ended up on the shelf for another year or two until Waylon had won his freedom and he was cutting the Dream In My Dreams album. Mm. And he was able to take that cut off the shelf and use it. And he added strings to it. And so that cut, that magical cut, finally saw the light of day. Um, <laughs> but, it, but it was, he instantly loved it. And he sang it like he already knew it. And the same thing happened to me while he was doing that album. I was hanging out there. I got a chance to sing Dreaming My Dreams for him. And he turned to Jack Clement at the end of it and said, that makes me think of my brother. Mm. And he immediately cut the song. And again, it was like he already knew it. He didn't have to learn it. I just wrote the lyric out and he sang it. And and it was gorgeous and sparse. And, yeah. and, uh, and he titled his album. And that album is like the watershed of his career. Yeah. It's a thing of beauty. And that song, Dreaming My Dreams With You, it that was the last thing that I listened to before I fell asleep uh, last night. That song has this kind of ethereal, you know, and a lot of singers have done that song. Right. That's a lot of a lot of singers have said, I, I got to record that. Jamie Johnson yeah. did it. Uh, Patty Loveless, didn't she? Mm-hmm. Um, Chris, didn't Crystal? Yeah, Crystal yeah. Gale. Mm-hmm. Martina McBride. Um, a bunch of others. It's my most recorded song. The Cowboy Junkie or Cowboy yeah. Junkies. Cowboy did Junkies, it. yeah. Uh, but it's, yeah, a lot of people have done that one. What do you think it is about that song that appeals to singers so much? I'm not sure. But it's an honest song. It, it, it reflects uh, where I was at that time, inwardly, and uh, and um, I I didn't remember it, but I had written again. I had written that melody first and put it on a cassette, and then I'd kind of forgotten about it. And one morning I came into the office; it was quiet, and I sat down and wrote the first verse and the chorus. And that they just kind of came through, and it was to that melody, and uh, I really liked it. And about a month later, I was—I decided I needed to get out of town to clear my head because I was just at one of those points. And I drove to um, um, the East Coast overnight. And I wrote that song on the way, the, the second verse on the way. And it was really my reaction to the first verse. The first verse is like really sad. Um, I hope I won't be that wrong anymore. Maybe I've learned this time. I hope that I find what I'm reaching for the way that it is in my mind. Someday I'll get over you. I'll live to see it all through. But I'll always miss dreaming my dreams with you. And then the second verse says, but I won't let it change me, not if I can. Mm. I'd rather believe in love and give it away as much as I can to those that I'm fondest of. And, um, and that was it. And I don't know, it just, it, it, Marianne Faithful recorded and had a number one hit yeah. in England and Ireland with it. Uh, it's traveled a lot. And I, I regard it as a gift. Wow. Yeah. Beautiful, beautiful song. Definitely. Is there a favorite rendition of the songs you've written? Has there been a particular version someone did that you think this is the best take on an Alan Reynolds song? Um, well, I, I would pro- probably, I don't know, I'd be a hard choice, but I would probably inevitably turned to Waylon and both of those songs, yeah. Dreaming My Dreams and Gypsy Woman. I, I just, uh, I'm s- such a fan of Waylon. Uh, uh, I don't, I, I never have known any other artist who can beat him at delivering 
a song and uh, and especially a song that he relates to and um, um, so I would probably and they were both in both those songs in his hands he did them so simply and uh, so the song and his performance are just there and uh, and they were first takes. There was no overdubbing, no patching, no nothing. That's just Waylon giving a performance. And, you know, as a producer, what you're after is songs that people can't forget. And then what you're after is a performance. Uh, and the reason I've always loved records is that you're trying to capture a performance that stands up to repeated listening and it and it continues to to affect you um, and whereas live i can appreciate but it but the sound is variable and the audiences are variable and and it's a passing moment but a, a record is for the record yeah you've always got it and and uh, and it's the performance that you're after to get that magic puff performance that that stands that delights people and stands the test of time, and uh, and that's always uh, been the most intriguing aspect of producing records for me is to get that performance. Hmm. Well, well, as we wrap up here, you've shared so many great stories. And it occurs to me, you know, the recording is something that we all get to enjoy again and again and again and again. You know, we get to, we get to hear the dance over and over again. We get to, uh, you know, listen to those first two Don Williams records, or all of them, let's just mm -hmm. say. But you've gotten a chance to witness a, a lot of magic moments, you know? Yeah. Like, you, you, what has it been like, my, my last question, what is it like to have that perspective, to sit there and watch magic unfold? It's 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 the biggest thrill in the world. Um, it's just inexplicable. It's um, it's like a moment in time that's captured, and and it's it's there for good. Um, it's the best feeling in the world. Um, I'm in that. Crystal Gale when she sang down and made my brown eyes blue. It was just perfect. Yeah. You know, and that was a an original performance. No overdubs, no patching. It was the way it happened. From everybody. Nobody patched anything. The band gave a performance. And as a producer, that's what you're trying to do is get that magic performance from everybody in the room. And um it's the best feeling in the world. And, and as a producer, I always tried to keep the technology uh, as far out of the way as possible so that no one was thinking about that. They were just like in, wrapped up in the performance of the song in question. And when you get that performance, it's goosebumps. You know, it's the prize of prizes. <laughs> <laughs> well put. Would you like to say anything to all those folks out there in closing? No, except uh, thank you for loving music and uh, and um, and thank you for supporting it. I think it's an important part of the human offerings to life. Yeah. Thank you so much. Pleasure. What a pleasure. Hope you. Uh, I hope you uh, don't have to do a lot of <laughs> editing. Oh, <on>. no. <laughs> oh, no.
We thank you and appreciate you dropping in for the Paul Leslie Hour today. You know, you can help the Paul Leslie Hour in our mission to provide independent media content like this by visiting www.thepaulleslie.com slash support. We truly thank you. This is your announcer speaking. Performance of the Entertainer intro song and Corina Corina outro song courtesy of John Primerano. Well, that's it for today. So until next time, be safe and be good.